1: Culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision.
0: So, an important opportunity today to focus on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples preparing for Christian ministry. Well, since 1973, Noongalinga College in the Northern Territory has been equipping men and women for leadership roles in churches and communities. And each year, men and women from over a hundred different communities across Australia. Go to study at Noongalinga College, both from urban and remote communities with a variety of cultural and language backgrounds. Well, our absolute privilege today to welcome Ben Van Gelderen. Ben is the principal of Noongalinga College in the Northern Territory. Noongalinga is in the suburb of Casuarina in Darwin, uh, described as a combined churches training college for Indigenous Australians. Uh, ben Van Gelderen, a special welcome along to 2020.
1: Oh, thank you very much, Neil. It's it's a, my pleasure to be here and, uh, as you said, hopefully share some good stories and some things to keep praying about in this uh, really interesting space.
0: Hey, Ben, uh, Nungalinga, I mean, that's obviously coming from an Aboriginal language. Uh, any yes. insight here into is there some special meaning? Is there a spiritual meaning around that? How does that relate?
1: Yes, it, it is actually a really lovely story. So uh, we're in Darwin, as you mentioned, which is on Larrakia lands. Uh, and Nungaliya is a Larrakia word, and in actual fact, when the churches were first thinking about having Nungalinya as a college, as a as a training college, it was you know late sixties, beginning of the seventies. Um, the missions in the territory were just like formally closing, so it was an interesting time, and there was a perceived need for some ongoing, structured, formal training for church leaders and community leaders, and Darwin was the obvious sort of central place, so. Those old church leaders, they spoke to the old Larrakia elders, and um, there was a real blessing given um, by the Larrakia elders to proceed with that idea. And it it was long, slow, and good negotiations. But in the end, those elders said, "Look, yes, you should have a college. It should be here, and it should be called Nungalinia. Um, Nungalinia is a uh, sort of a, a rock feature, uh, a reef off off the beach there, at Casuarina, which you can still see on a low tide and It has a lot of sacred stories there. In fact, in the old times, the Larrakia men took their younger men and told, passed down some of those sacred stories at Nungalinya. And so that whole coastal region is known as Nungalinya as well. And they said, look, what are you going to be doing? You're going to be passing down the sacred stories of the scriptures. So... And you're right. It you're right opposite Nungalina, so it should be called Nungalina. So that's that's where the name came from.
0: And isn't that fascinating? And a way that as we try to understand Aboriginal culture and how that intersects with Christianity, and some are critics, yes. some are critics that somehow or other Christianity comes in and takes over a culture. In some sense, uh, that happens within what the Aboriginal person. Uh, will relate uh, when they are receiving something from God, but this thought of mm. passing down the sacred stories, passing down the sacred scriptures, that runs mm. beautifully together, doesn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely! And look, look, the NT history is quite unique. Um, I'm literally actually in Melbourne today for a conference, and we're hearing stories from more the southern areas, um, and it's really good to hear those stories, and they're powerful, and sometimes you know really, really sad stories, but. The NT history is quite different in many ways, and um, the, the missions began later. Um, there was often a high respect for local languages, cultural practices, a real contextualisation of faith from the from the outset. Actually, so um, the Noongar story, as it stands now as a college, is you know a product of that longer history in the NT, and um, yeah, it's it's diverse, but it. Um, it is a little bit different to some of the southern stories that the media often focuses on, yeah. Uh,
0: now, I know you <laughs> celebrated 50 years, uh, Nunga mm. last year. Um, take yeah. us, I mean, I don't think you were there, but take us back to th- some of the history <laughs> here because it didn't yeah. get off to a great start because uh, Cyclone Tracy roared through Darwin back in 1974. Yes. What, was, uh, what was happening at the time?
1: Well, they just begun, actually, and it, it basically knocked down all the buildings that they'd first begun, uh, except for one—the uh, the then principal's house, <laughs> which is still standing, I might say. Um, so that's quite an amazing story of itself. There's these dramatic photos of just absolute destruction, and then a random house for some reason that didn't get knocked down. Um, yeah, so that was a really difficult beginning. But to be honest, um, a byproduct of that was the first principal of the college who was um dr keith cole a very well known in anglican circles in melbourne at the time had been a theological principal down here um, He he went back down to people and said look we need your support to start this thing it's a good thing we had everyone's blessing and then obviously the cyclone has really demolished so um, a byproduct of that is actually though that there are many churches particularly in melbourne and other places as well who have sort of been connected, supporting and praying for the college ever since that time and um, part of my role is actually maintaining those relationships, uh, coming down and speaking to those churches and individuals and foundations that support the college. But, yeah, that history in a funny way, um, I actually think has been a bit of a blessing. It's, it's highlighted the partnership nature of the college and, yeah, partnerships is very much what Noongalanya is built upon.
0: And sometimes those sorts of stories are the testimony that many people carry, uh, that early in their Mm. own walk uh, there was some crisis and it drew attention from others and it brought around those who would be supporters and help you get through the hard times. But as you're saying, over 50 years there are people who began to support at the time of cyclone tracy and that support yes. continued to actually form the yes. foundation for what is now a significant uh, a bible college
1: absolutely absolutely and it's quite you know you you praise god for these things and over the last few years i've had the you know capacity to come down and visit some of those churches and and some of those individuals um couples who have literally been supporting the college and getting the newsletter in whatever form it's been in for the last 50 years and praying so um yeah, it's a wonderful story to those testimonies of their faithfulness, but also God's, you know, um, in his providence, uh, providing for the college. So, yeah, it is, it is a good part of the story, yes.
0: And, you know, uh, those early supporters, uh, they don't last forever. And at the end of our conversation today, I'm going to give an opportunity there for listeners just to write down a connecting point, a website, where you can be in touch mm. with Ben. Yeah. And you never know, there might be some new friends uh, that can help with expansion. And I know there'll be a lot of people who are very excited and interesting with what's happening with the Aboriginal people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander all over Australia, because, as I mentioned in the intro, um, Nungalinga, there's a combined churches uh, collaboration here. Uh, who's involved? Yes. What sort of churches yes. are involved in this?
1: Yeah, that, that's a good story too. So um, that little bit of that history I was mentioning, so that they were largely, at the very start, um, Anglican people and the, the Methodists who were just about to become the Uniting Church um, largely because they had some missions in Arnhem Land so yeah, it's, it's a slightly different story but the NT people weren't competing, the different denominations weren't competing for the same areas and places, they actually had an arrangement, said well we'll go here, you go there and that's still very, actually very important to the structure of the NT today, so they say some of those Church Missionary Society missionaries and those methodist overseas missionaries they were the ones that were getting together and talking about the college so it began as a partnership between the anglican church and the uniting church Uh, about 20 years later the catholic church formally joined so they're the three partner churches Uh, but to be honest neil people now come from all over so there's there's baptists and there's lutherans and there's people that associate with pentecostal independent churches but those three partner churches are the formal partners and they they support the college with staffing and in other ways. Uh, but, yeah, like I said, nowadays people really do come from across the whole breadth of uh, the Christian family.
0: And there might be listeners who are thinking, how does all that work together? Well, uh, shortly <laughs> we'll open our talk back line. You might even have that question for Ben. Hey, I mentioned that yeah. students coming from over a 100 communities, um, both for mm. ordained leadership and for lay people. And uh, yes. they're training for ministry. A uh, hundred communities. Uh, this is like all over Australia.
1: Well, um, people do come from all over Australia, but that, those hundred communities are mostly in the NT. So, once again, knowing a little bit of the history of the NT helps explain the situation. So, where there were missions and those different churches um, had various missions, they've largely evolved into what we call now communities. They might range from you know five hundred to 3,000 people, Um, there's also a whole range of other smaller communities, often called homelands or outstations, Um, they may only have 30 people, um, 50 people there, but they're all discrete communities, um, and so when we say over 100 communities, we're talking about all those range of bigger communities and smaller homelands and outstations, Um, probably 95% of our students come still from the NT context. And that remaining 5% from a smattering from more urban centres or Sydney or Melbourne or Adelaide. Uh, But the vast majority, yes, still coming from remote NT or just over the border into um, South Australia or Western Australia, uh, remote Indigenous communities though.
0: Yeah, You might have some real insight here uh, for listeners because I suspect there are some who are saying, what's the difference between the Whitefellas Bible College? And the mm-hmm. Blackfellas Bible College, uh, do yep. things look different? How do, how do you see it?
1: Yes, well, um, yes, they do. It's quite profoundly different in, in some ways. Um, we've already mentioned that sort of ecumenical focus, which is a bit different to most colleges, which are still you know, in their channel of their denomination. So that's one difference, and that, that has its challenges and joys. Um, the other difference probably uh, to be aware of is that our we're a vet sector or an RTO, um, so largely because people's English is maybe their third or fourth or fifth most used language. They speak a number of other Indigenous languages. Um, and and really, in a remote community, English is the language of the school and, you know, the government organisation. It's not the language of the community. So, so people's English is not uh, usually at the point where tertiary, you know, Bachelor or master's levels is quite within reach at this point. So we operate at a slightly lower level that sort of um, vet sector So that's a bit different to most colleges although increasingly other people are doing that as well um, But probably the most profound difference near would be the college um, Has always believed in and we strive to maintain I guess a philosophy of education Which is that uh, we're all learning together um, Yes, a lot of our staff are experts in, you know, theology or literacy or whatever the other courses may be, but there's a profound sense that they're also learning from their Indigenous brothers and sisters. I mean, the average age of our students <laughs> is probably 50. Um, so they've lived a long life of faith and almost always have been wrestling with how Christianity and traditional culture integrate and how that whole dynamic works for their whole lives. Um, And so they often bring real fascinating insights into the scriptures, into God, um, in ways that I would never see uh, because I I just haven't come from a culture which is still a very traditional culture. So what I'm saying here overall is that there's a fascinating interplay of people, both teachers and learners and students and other staff, and um, that's probably a little bit different to most Western Bible colleges where it's still largely I'm the expert and you need to write down what I'm going to tell you and we will, you know, we'll give you a test to see whether you did it right or not. So, yeah, it does It does have a different feel. Yes, definitely.
0: Hey, Ben, take us into the classroom here because when you yes. talk about the real diversity of what happens in Aboriginal Australia and those hundred communities and you're drawing people in from those and they're no doubt responding to a calling and preparing for ministry... But yes. when you mentioned they're coming from all sorts of different tribal language groups, how does that work yes. in the classroom?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, it makes for a fascinating uh, space. So, um, you know, in a typical classroom, our, our sort of sweet spot for a class is about 15 people, especially when people don't have English as their first language um, and most of our courses still have to rely on that for assessing and things like that. So about 15 people, say, that would almost always be representing seven to eight to nine different languages in that fifteen people, so as you might expect, that makes for a fascinating learning space um It means a couple of things in practice. it means you can't really even if we want to um follow a bilingual you know style you know because you could have a indigenous teacher and we do have indigenous teachers, but of course they might be speaking in a language understood by three of those. 15 people, but not the whole class, uh, which means the class is still largely in English. So, th- I mean, that has benefits and drawbacks as well. Um, people do want to learn in English. Uh, they do want to get better at their English for other practical reasons living in the 21st century. But uh, we don't want it ever to be seen that it looks like God uh, only deals in English, uh, that God is, uh, you know, a white fellow God. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. It means that it's a really fascinating place to actually visit you know there'll be language all over the walls different languages some of it english some of it in bichanjara or yongla languages or a whole range every class so that, that is just our normal that is our normal dynamic so um you know i um often encourage our teachers you're doing a fascinating and wonderful work and just keep Keep learning as you can as well.
0: So uh, 50 years you've been doing this, so you must have learned a clue or two along the way (laughs) about how to do this. So you've got nine languages in one class. Uh, Now, Mm. I'm aware and uh, lots of listeners may be aware that there is a full Creole Bible. Now, Creole is a little bit like a trade language for Aboriginal people. So when you've got the primary focus on English language, uh, because that's the one I guess that people can integrate into into various yes. communities, um, yes, is the Creole Bible a a good focus there, or uh, how does that work? Because uh, yes, yeah, yes, there's,
1: there's um, not- it's it's a resource. Um, look, yeah, it's wonderful that the the Creole Bible is the only one that has a full Bible, which you know is it was a praise God moment. It was wonderful news. Um, but not everyone um, speaks Creole, um, and not everyone really wants to have Creole, um, I guess, swamp their own traditional languages, because that that has happened a little bit in the history of even those areas where Creole is now a mother tongue. So it is a delicate one. Um, so we we certainly use Creole. Creole is for some people's um, their first mother tongue now, uh, but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be right to sort of put all your eggs in a basket and teaching Creole and only have Creole as well because there's a, there's a delicacy around people's languages and they really want to learn both in terms of English and their own language. And they want to be literate in both of those languages. And they want to understand the scriptures in both of those languages, their own language that is, and uh, English. So, yep real is wonderful, but it's only one of the languages of the college.
0: And of course there is a stream in the college uh, which is about Bible translation. So no Indeed. doubt when you've got yes. people coming from communities where there isn't a whole Bible in their language, there's yep. going to be some inspiration, isn't there, to be a part of the process of bringing those things to life.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that that's what I mean. There's that Bible translation course which is just one of those courses we have, as you say. Um, but that's that's really beloved of almost everyone. Um, Not everyone can be a Bible translator. Um, Certain people have those skills, like in all areas in life, but for everyone, um, there is a profound difference of hearing God's word in your own language, in your own heart language, as they say. Uh, And we see that a lot because we have our morning chapel uh, and it's in a range of languages and English as well. And people love it. They, They love to stand up and say, this is the first time I've shared in English, you know, but, there's a, there is a difference between sharing in English and sharing in your own language and especially when it comes to hearing hearing God speak to your life so yeah Bible translation uh, is not finished. If, if people are thinking, "Oh that was a year of the 1970s and it's all done um, it really hasn't so I, I, I'm putting a plug out for listeners who may hear that call of God because there's still a vast need for other you know well-intentioned and skilled you know, white fellow, people to come and help that Bible translation progress continue.
0: You know, in the history of world missions, uh, the Bible has become very important. Uh, we're talking about such a diversity of languages here, uh, mm. the pathways that people have come to faith and become uh, very good and skilled in the way that they are able to use their faith, uh, literacy mm. and numeracy. Uh, you teach these sorts of even basics uh, from the Bible. Give us an insight here, Ben. How does that all work?
1: Yeah, well, I think that's one of the strengths of the college. Um, Like I said, people do want to improve in their English literacy and numeracy skills. You need those things. Um, Even in remote communities, you have to have those skills to get roles, get jobs. Um, And the beauty, though, of course, is you can teach English literacy and oracy uh, through all sorts of texts, including the Bible so one of our great strengths and we call it our foundation studies programs and there's a number of courses there that people progress through um yes formally they might be studying a certificate in one as english as an additional language and that's what the piece of paper is going to say but in actual fact most of the time we're talking about the story of abraham or the abraham the joseph story or each year there's a different focus so that's a wonderful thing where you can do you know two things with the one stone um, So, yeah, people really enjoy those foundation studies courses. It also means that even if your literacy is very, very low in English, there's a course for you because we are in that vet sector and there's a whole range of courses. And some of them really are for people who are learning basic alphabet, first words of English, but there's still a course for that. So we can teach that course more orally, um, but you can still come to Noongalini and learn the story of Moses or whatever it happens to be. So, yeah, that that integration is one of the great strengths of uh, the current setup.
0: Well, our special guest is Ben, Ben Van Gelder, and Ben is the principal of Noongalinga College in the Northern Territory, and you might be surprised that there's been a college that's been training ministers of the gospel from Aboriginal communities for over 50 years, and you might want to connect in some way. Either you might want to ask and inquire about how you might even become involved in that or you might know uh, some uh, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander people. You want to pass on the detail, noongalinga.edu.au. Hey, Ben, let's talk about ways that you communicate uh, gospel, uh, theology mm-hmm. into the setting for Aboriginal people. And as you described the complexity of nine languages in one classroom, uh, sometimes that's going to be difficult. So no doubt you'll be relying on uh, metaphors or those sorts of images that we might be able to glean from the Bible. What are the sort of powerful metaphor images uh, that that tend to really resonate uh, when you're in an, an, a classroom with Aboriginal trainees?
1: Oh, yes. Well, look, people love to learn new things, but there are, yes, yeah, some some strong motifs or images or favourite passages that seem to really resonate powerfully uh, across that diversity. Um, a, a lot of the time when there's obviously living in this land of uh, called Australia, um, you needed water. Uh, you needed water to survive. Um, so stories around the living water and Jesus' reflections on those topics often strike a powerful chord. I know that in our art and faith class last year, um, that really took off. And there was just more and more paintings using some of those passages and images. Um, obviously, there's lots of other water stories in the Old Testament as well, so they reflected on a lot of those stories. So that living water, that ongoing faith, that, um, that that was a powerful one in my recent recollection. Um, there's often stories as well that connect to people's own old stories, so in their own particular cultures. And, of course, there's a diversity of stories there. But there was often, in God's wisdom, again, in Providence, little little links um, that made hearing that gospel come alive and people to go, oh, there's something here. Because this story we're hearing connects to our old story. So often they become favorites um, and ongoing that story get retold that this is why when the missionaries came we actually we kept listening and and we started to really be intrigued by this story so there's lots of those as well and I think um, a lot of look a lot of our students are women women as well uh, which is a complex story in itself but probably 80 percent of the students are women Um, and there's often a real link to stories where Jesus is talking to women and expressing love and grace and mercy but um but you've got a role to do you've got things to do and uh, I've, I've got a calling for you so a lot of those stories come follow me to the to the the, to the fisherman disciples that's their really powerful story especially particularly for saltwater people who do a lot of fishing so yeah i could go on and on but yeah often those stories really need to sink in deep and stay for people for
0: their whole lives. Uh, Stay with the art and faith uh, stream that you're teaching there because uh, a lot of us will be familiar with the fact that uh, Aboriginal art has... Uh, really just mm. uh, dynamically uh, grown over recent times, and it's perhaps not even just uh, people who might be uh, tourists who are looking for Aboriginal mm. artworks, but it appears yes. all over the place. So so yes. what, what appears in Aboriginal artwork, and sometimes we might be thinking there's a reflection there of Aboriginal Dreamtime legend, uh, but yes. when someone's gone through a faith, and art course in a bible college what does that do for mm. the for the final product any any insights from you around that
1: oh yeah look it's fascinating um look the college has had various sort of art uh, or textiles courses in its history but uh this latest iteration i guess we call art and faith and yeah people want to come to really integrate the different parts of their identity and there's some absolutely amazing pieces that have been produced that are just rich in theology and you could spend you know half an hour looking at but another few few hours hours sort of unpacking and really the inspiration came from from my side to really push for this was uh, there was a young fella Troy from Daily River know you and he was doing one of our theology classes but in the afternoon to sort of just process it all and to think about it and he just went to another little art room we had, just as as an aside, and just did this amazing artwork. It was it was stunning, and it was you know it wasn't anything new, but we just went oh we we've got to strive to actually have a course that is isn't just as an adjunct to our courses, and that that was the genesis of our art and faith course, and it's this is its fourth year now, so we're really excited. We had a few public exhibitions, and I think as you say, Neil, more and more. Christians and churches are wanting to engage with Indigenous spirituality, and art is a really good first step. And so, um, you know, getting a piece of art for themselves or their church foyer, they're really good first steps. So uh, we're trying to encourage that as well and seeing how we can be part of that.
0: Fascinating real life where the rubber hits the road uh, when it comes to mm. how faith intersects with uh, reality. And the reality for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students training for ministry might look a little bit different uh, to the reality for a lot of white fellas in different parts of the country. Another one of mm. the streams that you've got uh, is around family well being. And, uh, you know, yes. we might be familiar with the sort of headlines that often get reported. How do you approach that in a theological college?
1: Yeah, well, that's right. So that's another one of our newer newer courses. Um, Firstly, I'd like to say, you know, really practically it only could come about through a partnership with Tear Fund. And many of our courses actually, I probably didn't say this earlier on, Neil, but um, are are partnered with other Christian organizations. So there's those formal church partners, Anglican Catholic Uniting, but Tear Fund, um, Bible Society, Quickly, Bible Translators, um, Anglican Board of Mission, there's various other groups that support something so it can actually happen. But that particular one, yeah, Tear Fund has partnered with us to put on this course. Um, we call it, yeah, Faith and Family Wellbeing. But really it's a reflection on how to be a strong person uh, in your own identity, how to build wellbeing with yourself and your own family, and then that, you know, like concentric circles going out to your communities and in particular, it's a response to, uh, you know, levels of domestic violence and abuse and trauma that are in communities. Of course, those things are everywhere, uh, but there are, yeah, there are some high levels of those things in remote communities, undoubtedly. And so it's, it's, it's one little part of the puzzle to hopefully um, see God's kingdom come and to spill out into those very practical things that um, can really make a big difference in people's lives.
0: And uh, no doubt, uh, lots of Christians are familiar with the opportunity you might have to study chaplaincy. And you've got chaplaincy as one of those streams too in Noongalinga. Yeah. Um, how does that look? Because uh, there clearly are needs, whether it's schools, whether it could be prison chaplaincy, could be hospital chaplaincy. Yes. How does that all work And uh, in Aboriginal communities?
1: Yeah, so this is a this is a really new one. We've only just started that last year, when we discovered that um, if people had done our certificate for in ministry and theology, which was sort of our highest uh, theological course, if they attached that with a, a smaller um, couple of units um, on mental health and a few other things, yeah, it would reach the minimum standard in the, in the territory at least to to work as a chaplain, which was just wonderful. Um, it's it's a real win win, Neil. Like people already really acting like pastoral carers and chaplains in a whole range of ways in their own communities. So this enabled them to actually say, look, we've now got a piece of paper and they could actually approach their schools, uh, clinics, age facilities, and actually say, I, I-, I can get a working role here um, if you're looking for one. And, and, and people are looking for one. So they did their prac in the local Darwin hospital and, you know, the hospital wrote to me and they just said, thank you so much because, Lots of the people in the hospital, of course, are Indigenous people from communities who don't speak English very well, and and it's a real mystery of what's even happening to them. So to have people from their own language and clans come and minister to them, pray for them, help them understand a little bit more what was happening, it it was a it was a win win because our people just loved it as well. That they, they were walking around the hospital singing Jesus is Lord in various uh, languages. It was a it was quite an amazing time. So. Yeah, we're really looking forward to how that chaplaincy develops and and hopefully those organizations really start to employ local people as well and not rely on white fellas that might be there for two years, but then they're gonna leave again. So that's that's the next step in the puzzle. We won't have as much control over that, but that is the that is the great hope.
0: Hey, let me take you into something a little deeper and just reflecting on last year's The Voice. Uh, yes, mm. no case, all sorts of things like that. And I don't want to get into that sort of thing to uh, to unpack a whole lot of uh, different dimensions. But there was something I picked up when I looked at the documentary that you can view on YouTube about Noonga yes. And it caught my attention that there was one of your Aboriginal graduates who talked about uh, the Christian Aboriginal view, and this is an interesting one, and uh, I'm not sure, Mm -hmm. you. I hope you're across this, but referring to Jesus as the Makarata man. Yes. Uh, So for listeners who'd be familiar with what was happening during the voice debate, um, Mm -hmm. Makarata was considered to be that struggle that uh, Aboriginal people would go through to face the wrongdoings, and uh, live again, once uh, once again in peace. Jesus, the Makarata mm. man. How does that how mm. does that uh, reflect that Aboriginal thought?
1: Yeah, yeah, like it's it's a lovely expression from um, yeah Marja, Damaranji, Yes, and he's um and he's a you know a really wise elder, long term Bible translator, uh, ordained minister in the United Church. I, I think what he was getting at was in the Yolngu culture, where he's an elder. Uh, Makarada was also a process of making peace through the shedding of blood. So if there had been ongoing dramas and violence and paybacks and the community went, we're not going to just keep having this cycle. They actually called for a Makarada and it actually in the old days involved a spear going through the thigh of the perpetrator, uh, sometimes jumping a number of spears, but then once they were hit, going through the thigh of the perpetrator, And then it was the end. That that, uh, justice was done, um, blood was shed, and peace could now flow. And so my understanding, at least, of what uh, Old Man was saying was, well, that's, you know, there's a symbol there of Jesus, isn't there? He's the Makarata man, but he didn't deserve that punishment. You know, in normal cases, it's to the person who's done the wrong thing, but Jesus took on the punishment for us that we deserved. So I think that's why he was saying he's the... He's the number one Makarata man for me. Um, that's, it's a gospel story, isn't it? Yeah.
0: It's beautiful imagery, and I can't help but think that this imagery, once it captures the hearts and minds of people within tribal groups in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australia, uh, it has led to significant revivals that have happened. And I know that oh, yes. there, was, there was one in the Gallowinku community in the Northern Territory oh, yes. back in the 1980s, directly uh, connected in some ways here with the college. How did that all work?
1: Oh, oh definitely. Yeah, so that's right. So there was, there was quite an amazing, genuine revival. It, it did start on Gallowinku, Elko Island, where Marich is from, actually. And he'll tell his own history of saying, I went down to those meetings, and that's where the Lord really first called him. Um, But it impacted a a vast amount of people. Um, It was a real, you know, fascinating time because it also sort of flexed out a little bit the boundaries of what church should look like. Um, Did it have to be on a Sunday morning at 9am when we ring the bell? And so the revival was a spiritual one in many people's hearts, but it also actually did, you know, I think flex out and let some of the structures of christianity uh reflect indigenous perspectives and so there were fellowship meetings they were at night they were in smaller groups there was a lot more localized singing and prayers for healing and it it didn't look like (laughs) the old church style um but then it also spread yeah and it really spread like a fire and there's a few books which use that fire imagery fire in the outback and things like that which actually show how it actually went from community to community all the way down into western australia in fact so yeah, look, Noongaliniu is definitely a, a product of that similar time. And interestingly, when we get together, like our morning chapels or our evening fellowships, they, they reflect more that sort of Thanksgiving revival style than any one particular denomination's liturgy. So, I mean, it's pretty tricky when you've got so many people together anyway. But um, this is a nice common ground because many people remember those times, became Christians in those times. Hark back to those times in many ways, would love to see, of course that happen again. So um yeah, that's an important, very important historical story that it would be great if it was well known, a bit better than it is across the Australian churches.
0: Ben, what sort of stories come to mind for you when you think of graduates from the Bible College? Uh, Going back into Mm -hmm. their communities, Uh, the sort of difference that it makes when you've got some theological training and uh, you're pursuing Mm -hmm. sort of even a lay leadership role. Uh, How does that work? And can you think of a a story that you can tell listeners?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, there's probably two things there, Neil. The the first one is picking up on that lay leadership idea that although there are people who are going through Nungalinya studies and do become deaconed and priesthood and it and different words for it, um, it's not just for those people. And, and that is important to note because uh, in a traditional Indigenous worldview, everyone should be growing in the knowledge of their sacred stories. You know, um, there were elders, of course there are elders, but everyone, as they grow in maturity, should be knowing their own people's stories. And I think Noongalini is serving that purpose well in that there's a course for anyone. If you're a Christian person connected to a fellowship or a church there's a course that's right for you and you can come and, and grow in your faith. Um, but, yes, look, there are individuals, and the one that pops to my mind only because I know him best because he's been working at the college the last few years, so James Woods, uh, he's from a little community called Europunga, just outside of Nukor, so in that Roper Valley um, and in that Anglican CMS history, that in that sort of area, he um, studied through the Noongalini courses. Uh, the last few years, he's come back and lived in Darwin and, and made a sacrifice to leave his community, to live in Darwin for four or five years as a teacher. So he's been working as a teacher at the college uh, in our staff, which is just wonderful. And the end of last year, um, through the Anglican church you know, system, he was deaconed. And I think, God willing, you know, in a year or two, um, he'll be priesthood. You know, he'll be ordained as a minister and go back home to serve his his people and the people of that Rapa Valley, and it's um, he's just a wonderful man, um, and the growth in him has been wonderful to see. And I, I just know that God will continue to use him in the in the following years. To um, as he says, you know, I've came as a trainer, a teacher, but now I it's time for me to go and uh, look after the sheep that God has put under me, my, my community, to be a good pastor. And um, yeah, we keep praying for him.
0: When you reflect on the Christianity in those Aboriginal communities, uh, they're in the top end, um, you know, talking Arnhem Land and uh, other communities, mm. hundred communities you're drawing people from. Um, mm. Australians outside of the territory um, may be not so familiar with the passion for Christian spirituality yes. that there is in Aboriginal communities. How do you reflect on that?
1: Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I grew up in Sydney. Um, my, my wife was born up here. She was um, a missionary kid. You know, her parents were translators. So I, I learned a lot from there, connecting to their family. Um, but, yes, it's, it's it's a world away um, in, in some ways, and some people don't know any of that history. And, and, look, we do reflect on that, and we try in our small way to help remedy that. You know, we have a, you know our social media sort of things, which is trying to tell these different stories, which are different to southern places. Um, we do have some programs where people can come visit us. So we have, the last few years, a number of school groups or church groups, you know, that come and actually stay at the college for a few days, do some modules, workshops, um, you know, spend some time around Darwin or also do a bit of holiday sort of stuff. Um, and we think, look, that's great uh, because they go back and then they're only just scratching the surface, but they're going back to hopefully learn more and all tell their own families and school networks that, um, oh. Cool. This is, this is happening up there. This is what people, uh, this is what their faith looks like. This is the passion they have. So it's not our, I guess, our core business, but we do understand that we probably have a role to, to try to do that where we can and to help, tell the good story of what's happening yeah
0: and for a lot of aussies the image we have in our mind uh, will be what's Mm. sometimes reported in mainstream media often it's negative images of aboriginal communities and the bad things Mm. that are happening Uh, but when you've got a contrast a contrast to a community that has been shaped by the values of the christian gospel uh, you've seen that and uh, you're actually training up those people that are primarily, no yes. doubt, coming from those communities to go absolutely. into their, uh, their other people groups around the country and, uh, and to bring this cause, because we call the gospel good news. It yeah. is good yes. news for communities, isn't it, Ben?
1: Oh, absolutely, and all, all the people that come to the college go back. I mean, one of the benefits they actually have of coming to the college, they get a bit of a break from their own community life, which seems a bit weird how connected they are, but Many of those people have so many of the responsibilities. They're church leaders. Uh, they're elders in their own right. They may be the only ones in their family working even a little bit, bringing in some money. They may go home and cook for 15 people every night. So they actually come to the college not just to learn and grow and fellowship with other Christians from different languages, but they have a bit of respite, like a, like a really good church camp or a retreat. Um, but what they want to do is go back home and be those shining those lights or Jesus, for their own people. And it can be really hard, yeah, because um, although most people would say they are Christian, you know, they tick that box in communities, there's still a lot of complex and sometimes terrible things happening. So the the church mob or whatever you want to call it, um, it's, it's such a New Testament. It's so easy to read the New Testament because it's just like that early Christian days. We are the ones, stay strong, don't give up, Keep coming back to the Lord for strength. You're in tough times and there's difficulties all around you. And, you know, it's very easy to read a lot of those New Testament letters um, and people relate to it straight away. It's their lived reality.
0: Ben, running short of time, what does it take for Noongalinga College to go to the Mm. next level? From where you are now, you've got a 50-year history uh, here you are, uh, we're talking 2024, and uh, what does it take to go to the next level? I mean, a new influx, a mm. spike in the number of students uh, who would be studying and going back into their yep. communities. How does, how does the next wave look? What does it take to,
1: to go to the new uh, next yeah, level? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, look, we've already, already got far more people wanting to come than we can cater for. Uh, because it's not just those communities there's more communities hearing about the college especially from lutheran and baptist and other regions in the desert who aren't as historically connected and they're saying starting to come (laughs) usually what happens people send a few of their key leaders and they go home and say oh that was really good (laughs) so you can all go um and people want to come so we to to cater for that yeah i mean we don't want to explode overnight but we want people to be able to come and learn the scriptures and go home and and serve god so it's probably a growth of staff we need. A lot of our staff come from church channels or those partner channels. So um, what we don't have compared to a normal, I guess, um, mainstream college is you don't have a lot of fees coming in to cover, you know, you get more students, you get more fees, you get more students. Um, we we charge very, very minimal fees and only for some of the courses. So most of the staff are actually supplied one way or the other through Christian church or organisational channels. If we could grow that staffing base, we would simply grow the numbers of people. The numbers are very healthy right now, but um, that—that's the reality of the situation. We we won't be able to cater for everyone who wants to come this year, not by a long shot.
0: Just quickly, how many are you able to cater for? How many in the mm. the uh,
1: you know the cohort um, for this year? Yes. Well, people don't come the whole year. They come for four weeks a year, and then they just keep coming back year after year, basically, So, and doing different courses. Uh, across the year, it's about 320 students that we have. At any given time, it's about five or six classes, which, you know, five or six times year you know, 15, sort of up to about 90, or who are there at any given time. They go home, and new ones come, and there's all these staggered timetables. But... Um, Yeah, at the moment, um, the demand is higher than the supply. So we're trying to work through that and and do that in a good way that isn't, you know, um, changing things overnight. But um, it's a good position, good problem to have, as they say. But, yeah, that is the reality.
0: You know, I think there'll be someone listening who can get a mental picture of the organisational challenge that's there when you've got, you know, the... Uh, demand outstripping the supply right now. In fact, uh, so mm. many will be surprised uh, that there are more inquiries of Aboriginal people trying to get into Bible college than you can possibly even cater for. Yeah. So, uh, yes, it sounds I, strange. <laughs> it does sound strange. And uh, and so it's a good story to tell, and I'm so pleased that we're talking to you mm. about this today. Uh, ben, I want to just give the website address for listeners to connect with you at Nungalinga. Yep. Bible College, this is the website, nungalinga.edu.au. Let me spell that uh, once again, n-u-n-g-a-l-i-n-y-a.edu.au. And Ben Van Gelderen is the principal of Nungalinga College, Uh, in Darwin in the Northern Territory. Uh, Ben, uh, just great talking. I feel like we've got lots more to say, so let's plan another one of these sometime soon. But thanks so much for sharing your thoughts and your heart with listeners today on 2020.
1: No, thank you for having me. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.